Good morning. At Blacknell, we're in the season of transition with uh, our new interim pastor and uh, new precedents being set, which I never realized that we could show pictures of our family on the overhead here. <laughs> I, I just happen to have about a thousand pictures of my grandkids that I will be getting to you all in the sound booth next week. Uh, this is really exciting. So, uh, If you are a visitor here, we're, we're glad that you were with us. It's a joy to be able to worship together. Uh, there is a, a black pad there in your pew if you want to sign that, pass that along. There's also prayer cards. Uh, have particular prayer concern. We have a prayer team that would be glad to pray for a uh, concern that you have. Uh, when can uh, we have, we had a guest today in leading worship. Can you introduce? Uh, yes. Who is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another precedent being set here. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Lord have mercy. Um, <laughs> Stuart, it's great to have you here. Thanks. And great to have uh, Leslie Petrie leading us in worship as well. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you all know Leslie. She is our, uh, children's, one of our children's ministry folks. And normally, this time, she'd be downstairs uh, with our kids. And uh, because kids are here with us, she's able to be with us this morning. So thanks, Leslie. And can I just say, I mean, this is the last Sunday. Uh, next week, kids will be back in the nursery. Can I just say, parents, kids, thanks for kids being here this morning. Uh, I know it may be stressful for you parents, but it's great that we're all together as a church family. And uh, yeah, I'm, it wouldn't be what we have chosen, but I think it's been a great thing that we can all be together uh, in worship. So thanks. We are making our way through the Gospel of Mark and find ourselves in Mark chapter 12. Let me remind us of our context here in the whole story. We've been following Jesus through his life and we come now in chapter 12. We are in the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, it is Tuesday of Holy Week. Palm Sunday was two days ago. Uh, Jesus drove out the money changers in the temple yesterday. And Jesus is in conflict, right? He is being attacked and challenged over and over. Uh, and this is a high-stakes competition. And the question is, who will win in this conflict between Jesus and particularly the religious authorities? Last week, we looked at the Pharisees and the Herodians, these unlikely partners who came to Jesus with a question about paying taxes to Caesar. And we're told that they marveled at his answer. Well, this morning, it is the Sadducees' turn. So turn with me then to Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 18. Listen again to God's word to us. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, 
Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This too is word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a high-stakes conflict. Jewish and Middle Eastern culture at that time was a shame-honor-based culture. One's honor is of the utmost importance. To suffer dishonor or shame is the worst possible offense. And Jesus, in this Holy Week, has been challenging the honor of the religious and political leaders in Jerusalem. These questions that people have been asking Jesus are not a friendly Q&A after some professor's lecture. No, this is a battle. This is an attempt to bring dishonor on Jesus and to show the people that the religious leaders are the truly honorable people. Thinking about this, I'm reminded of Kim's brother who taught for a year in China. China is also a shame, honor-based culture. And he tells the story of how one of his fellow faculty members, uh, they said, let's play a game of ping pong. And Mike said, that would be great. So he played this game of ping pong. And Mike, who loves to tease, began to tease his colleague and kind of, you know, probably in a typical American way, talked a little bit of trash, I guess, you know, and, and proceeded to beat him in, in the game of ping pong, right? And it was a fun, I mean, the students were all watching. It was a fun thing to do together, right? Well, three weeks later, this faculty member said, Mike, let's play ping pong. And he said, sure. He said, like, four o'clock today, be there. Okay. So he showed up, ready to play ping pong. And he, you know, played ping pong. And he said, he hit the first serve, and the, the professor slammed it back, like, Past him, like, wow, he hit another, slammed the pass. Over and over, like, totally killed him, right? And as he hit him, he's like, you are not prepared. You are not prepared, right? <laughs> and Mike realized that this man spent three weeks doing nothing but practicing ping pong, right? Preparing for this match. Because this was not just a simple game of ping pong. He had been dishonored, right? This man had beaten him in front of other students. He had to regain his honor, right? And that's what we're talking about in this, in this interaction between Jesus and the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians. Their honor is at stake. This is no small conflict. This is a, <laughs> a life and death matter, as we will find out as we read the story. When the Pharisees and the Herodians ask Jesus the questions about paying taxes to Caesar, they think they have him, right? But Jesus' answer was so brilliant, so insightful and profound that we're told everyone marveled at him. Jesus gained in honor, and the Pharisees and the Herodians are shamed for trying to trap him. In today's language, you'd say that Jesus, right, dropped the mic, right? Nothing more could be said. When the Sadducees come with their question, they thought they had, right, the mic dropped. This is no casual question. This is a question 
that someone spent a lot of time coming up with. It's not like they had this situation come up in their synagogue and they wanted to know what to do about it. This is a bunch of divinity school folks thinking together about how, how can we disprove this belief that they think Jesus had about the resurrection. Now, the Sadducees, this is the only time we meet them here in the Gospel of Mark. They were the, the political and religious elite of the time. They controlled the priesthood and the temple in Jerusalem. They were marked by wealth and, and prestige. They were, I guess we could call them theological conservatives in the sense that they did not accept uh, change. They did not accept modern, in those days, modern theological innovations that came along in the Jewish faith, like resurrection, like belief in angels or belief in demons. In fact, they were so conservative, they believed only the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, were the only ones that were authoritative. The rest of the Old Testament that the Pharisees and others accepted were not authoritative. Only those first five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In fact, they were conservative in the sense that they were, did not believe in angels, did not believe in demons, did not believe in resurrection, did not believe in miracles, only Torah, only being obedient to God's commands. And as people in positions of power in Jerusalem, they collaborated with the Romans. They worked together with the Romans in a conservative way to keep things the same, to let, not let things change. And so then we're told... Verse 23, they asked the question, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married for her? <laughs> Answer that, Jesus, right? Then notice Jesus' response. Are you not in error? This is not a question, right? He is stating a fact. You are in error, and here is why. Or in the words of one translation, you are way off base. Shame, right? Shame, dishonor. And here's why, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. What? The Sadducees thought they knew all about both the scriptures and the power of God. They certainly thought they understood power, right? After all, they were the ones in power. They're the ones who are constantly navigating the politics of power in Jerusalem. They controlled the Sanhedrin, the council of 70 elders. They controlled the high priesthood. They even cajoled and manipulated the Roman governors to accomplish their purposes. Who is this Galilean who would accuse us of being off base? They ran the rabbinic schools in Jerusalem. Who is this uneducated peasant who tells us that we are in error? But notice Jesus' response. In verse 25, he says, When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. How does Jesus know this? On what authority does he say this? He's not citing some Old Testament text. He is stating as fact someone, something that someone could not know unless it had been revealed to them by God or unless that person himself was God. Now, there are two questions I want us to think about this morning as Jesus responds. And the first question is, what does this passage teach us about marriage? We hear this text, and my suspicion, at least for those of us who are married, is that we are troubled by this thought, that there won't be any marriage at the resurrection. We think about our own marriage, 
And we are troubled by the thought that this good thing that we enjoy now will not be present at the resurrection. Will Kim and I just be friends at the resurrection? Will I be in the friend zone for eternity? <laughs> right? Horror. Ah. But let's, let's be clear, right? This text is not a text about marriage. It is a text about resurrection. But it does have something to say about marriage. Have you ever thought that you knew the meaning of a word and used it and, and then suddenly realized, actually, I don't know what this word means? Well, it happened to me when I was in college. I heard this word that I didn't know what it meant. The word was penultimate, right? And in my mind, I, I heard it used several times. Oh, penultimate must mean like if something is ultimate, the penultimate is like the real, really ultimate, right? And so I started using it in that kind of way until I finally put it in a paper and I got a comment from the professor with a question mark, penultimate, right? Because penultimate means not the ultimate, but like the thing right before the ultimate. Not, not the best, but the thing a little bit less than the best, right? Well, marriage is not the ultimate. It's not the best thing. It's not the greatest thing. It is a penultimate thing. We live in a world that thinks marriage and sex are the ultimate thing. That the friend zone is a circle of hell. Our world thinks that sex is ultimate. If you're living a celibate life, then you're living a less than fully human life. And this is even true in the church. In the church, we communicate that we, sex belongs only in marriage, and then we imply that if you are not married, then you are missing out on the best there is in life. Your life is diminished if you can't get married. And Jesus is clearly teaching us here that marriage is not the ultimate thing. It is not the greatest thing. James and Michelle will be married here in a few minutes. That's a good thing, right? <laughs> but it is not the best thing. Michelle's life was not lived at some like lower level up until today, and then after today she'll be living at some higher, greater level. Notice what Jesus is saying about this hypothetical woman in the story the Sadducees bring to Jesus. She is married to seven men. She doesn't have a child with any of them. And the question is, whose wife will she be? On Jesus' time, a woman was defined by which man she belonged to. She belonged to her father until she got married, and then she belonged to her husband. A woman was defined as some man's daughter or some man's wife or some man's mother. And the Sadducees thought they had disproved the resurrection because it's absurd to think that a woman could belong to seven men at once. But I think Jesus is saying something quite radical here. A woman's identity as a daughter or a wife or a mother is penultimate. It is not the essence of who a woman is. It is not her primary identity. At the resurrection, we'll be our full, complete selves, and that is determined not by our marital status for men nor for women. At the resurrection, I will not be Kim's husband or my children's dad, not even my grandkids' grandfather. Although I do have some pictures if you want to see them. Right? 
I will be then even as I am now, Jesus' brother, God's son. Or perhaps more significantly for this congregation, we will be Christ's bride as we are now. That is the ultimate thing. That is the best thing. This is not a, a friend zone because knowing Christ and being fully known by him is the best thing. And we can experience that now as a married person and just as well and in some ways better as a single person. Now maybe you're sitting there, yeah, but what about, what will my relationship be with my wife, my husband at the resurrection? Jesus didn't tell us, right? We don't know. But I think we know this, that it will be better than it is now. We can't imagine what it is, but we know it will be better. The second question that I want us to think about is the more important one, I think. And what does this passage teach us about the resurrection? The Pharisees, not the Sadducees, but the Pharisees and most of the people believed in resurrection. They believed that when you died, you went to be with God in a disembodied state as a spirit, as a soul. But they also believed there would be an embodied resurrection, that at the last day, the dead would be raised and given resurrection bodies. Remember the story of Jesus and Lazarus. When Jesus gets there and he says uh, to Mary that Lazarus will rise again, and, and I think Martha says, I know at the last day, Lazarus will be raised, right? We know that he's with God now in spirit. At the last day, he'll be raised with a new resurrection body. That's what they believed. But the Sadducees, they believed there was nothing after this life, that our existence ends when we die, that this life is all there is. God blesses those who are righteous in this life, and God judges those who are disobedient in this life. And you can see why the wealthy elite would be attracted to this, right? My wealth is a sign of God's blessing. God is pleased with me. God has given me good success. To resist the status quo, then, is to resist God. The people should accept God's judgment and obey what we, as their leaders blessed by God, tell them to do. But Jesus says this in verse 26. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. And he is saying two things that are important for us. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus argues for the reality of the resurrection based on the assumption that when God called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he established a relationship with them. And once he established a relationship with them, a relationship based on God's promise, that that relationship cannot be ended, even by death. And the book of Genesis, if you read it, read the stories about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, teaches that that relationship cannot be ended by sin either. That relationship with God is the result of God's promise and God's power that conquers even the last enemy, death itself. Jesus' interpretation of Exodus 3, 6 that he quotes here is proven true, not just by the brilliance of Jesus, although he is indeed brilliant, is proven true because of Jesus' own authority. It is true because Jesus says it's true. And we believe that 
Jesus has the authority because of Jesus' own resurrection. What this teaches us then about resurrection first is that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can cut us off from relationship with God, neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then the second thing Jesus teaches us here about the resurrection is that our God is a revolutionary God. Jesus quotes Exodus 3.6 at the burning bush. He quotes from the Torah that the Sadducees accepted as the word of God. But Exodus 3 is this passage of God speaking to Moses at the burning bush. At the burning bush, God says to Moses that he has heard the cries of his people and that he is sending Moses to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. The Sadducees believed that God stayed in heaven. No angels, no demons, no miracles. Just this material world and its rules and laws that we must follow and we can manipulate. Jesus is saying that God is active in our world, that God acts to rescue his people. When Jesus talks about resurrection, he's not just talking about whether or not there's life after death. He is talking about the key symbol of the triumph of God's justice. One day, God will raise up from the dead all those who have died. God will intervene in history and make all things right. This apocalyptic view of life is revolutionary. If I believe that in the end, God will rescue and turn upside down and right side up all things, then my immediate circumstances are not ultimate. This is revolutionary, right? As we think about, as we hear the stories of what's happening right now in Ukraine, right? If Putin is right and all that matters is power, then we should make sure either our army is bigger or we should all just run away, right? But we hear the stories of those staying against greater power, staying willing to die, right? Why would you? But if there's resurrection, right? If there's resurrection, then even we are willing to die. We can resist evil and power and even resist violence because there is a resurrection. This is revolutionary for us. If what ultimately matters is getting into Harvard or Duke or Brown, and if your life cannot really accomplish much without that degree, then we should be killing ourselves and our children to get into those schools. But if there is resurrection, then God is able to accomplish far more with those whom the world considers weak and unimportant then we can accomplish on our own with whatever degree. It's why reality ministries is so important to us because they remind us of resurrection, of God's power speaking to us, transforming us through our friends there. Why UCBC, this university in Eastern Congo, is so important to us, a university no one even knows about, right? Transforming people's lives, God's kingdom, God's resurrection taking place in that faraway corner of our world. Why East Durham is important to us. Why, Leslie, why working in the nursery is so important to us, right? 
Can I get an amen? At least one? <laughs> because being with our children, these weak, unimportant ones, right? Resurrection happens as we're with our children. They teach us. They transform us. Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Jesus said this to the Sadducees, those who had control over his life or his death, and we will find out in a couple days, right? They will pay him back for the dishonor he's brought on them. Jesus was not afraid to speak the truth, the truth that we all need to hear because there is resurrection. Jesus raised to new life and us too. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we look at our world and we don't see a whole lot of evidence of resurrection. It'd be easy for us to be like the Sadducees and to think that all there is is this material world and what we see. That the, whose army is the biggest determines who wins. Lord, we see it internationally. We see it in our own lives. We see brokenness, cancer, all of it, Lord. But, but Jesus reminds us, you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the living, the God who intervenes in, in our world and will one day intervene to make all things right. Lord, help us to be people of courage, people of faith, people who live our lives, not for what is penultimate, but for what is ultimate. In Christ's name we pray, amen.